Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that focuses on the lives and times of great historical figures that have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. In this episode, we'll talk about one of the most important rulers of early Cambodia, Jayavarman VII. Jayavarman witnessed the conquest of his capital and basically the destruction of his empire. But then he took charge himself, enacted revenge on the conquerors, and ended up bringing the Khmer Empire to perhaps its peak. Maps and images for this episode, like all others, can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. We're coming up on the end of Season 2, so I want to first of all thank everyone who has been listening. Also, if you have a moment, please go on iTunes and rate the podcast. It only takes a minute or two, and it'll help bring attention to the show and bring new people along as I take a break to prepare material for the next season. And with that, this is Season 2, Episode 9, Jayavarman Seventh, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Twelfth century AD, when Jayavarman VII was born, the Khmer Empire was the dominant power in its immediate region. But they had only been that way for a century or so. The empire was centered in modern-day Cambodia, specifically along the Tonle Sap River. It also controlled the Mekong Delta and much of the southern portion of this river system, one of the world's most fertile regions. That delta is, of course, controlled by Vietnam today. But back then, the people that are considered the forerunners to modern-day Vietnam were concentrated in what we might think of as North Vietnam, at the risk of using an anachronistic term. In South Vietnam, another term that may have no political and only geographic meaning at this point, laid the territory of Champa, but the Cham people were concentrated along the coast, more so than even today's map of Vietnam. And as I mentioned, they didn't control the Mekong Delta. In the rest of Southeast Asia, there were several groups of organized cultures that ruled different territories which are in somewhat familiar spots even to us today. To the north of the Khmer was the kingdom of Dali, the ancestors of today's Laos, and to the west was the Lavo, predecessors of Siam and Thailand. Further west was the Pagan kingdom in Burma, and further north was China. Burma was far enough away that the Pagan kingdom doesn't play much of a role in this, But China, being Asia's superpower for most of history, does. The Khmer Empire sent embassies to China, and China's records of the region are some of the only ones that survive. Down the Malay Peninsula and further south into today's Indonesia, a large maritime kingdom known as Srivijaya ruled. These people would, over the next few centuries, disappear, but live on through one of their princes, Paramasawara, or Sri Iksandar who established the Malacca Sultanate in the year 1402. Looking west, India was divided among many kingdoms, while the Seljuk Sultanate ruled from the Hindu Kush mountains over the Iranian plateau to the Mediterranean, including Anatolia. A woman, Arwa al-Sulahi, had been ruling over Sana'a and much of Yemen for nearly half a century, and the Shiite Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt was just beginning to collapse. In Europe, Louis VI began to consolidate royal power in France, 
which had been weak and divided for centuries. England was plunging into a period of civil war known today as the Anarchy, although its rulers held territory in much of today's western France as well. The Holy Roman Empire remained the largest power in Europe, and the Salian dynasty, made up of, you guessed it, Franks, was finishing up its time at the top of the empire. Further east, Poland, once a large kingdom, was fragmenting into less powerful dukedoms, and the Kievian Rus had also declined to the point of splintering into many smaller kingdoms. In Western Africa, the Ghana Empire had collapsed into smaller successor states as well, while in the east, the Ethiopian Empire, which would hold power in one form or another until 1974, took shape. Over in the Americas, Mesoamerica was in what is called the post-classical period. The Maya were still powerful in the Yucatan, while the Mixtec were strong in Oaxaca. The Toltec Empire collapsed, and its capital was destroyed by the Mexica people, ancestors of the Aztecs. So let's return to Southeast Asia. As for the Khmer themselves, the Khmer Empire is considered to have started in 802 AD. Prior to that, there were certainly organized groups of people living in the region. The people were called, or called themselves, the Kambuja, and their territory was Kambuja Desa. This word, Kambuja Desa, was a Sanskrit word which has made its way all the way to us as Cambodia. The region itself was fertile, and it was populated mostly along the Tonle Sap River Basin. The Tonle Sap River feeds into the Mekong and has a vast floodplain. According to Lawrence Palmer Briggs in his The Ancient Khmer Empire, quote, the Great Lake, located in the central basin of Cambodia and drained by the Tonle Sap, is one of the world's marvels. In normal times, it is a shallow, muddy pool or collection of pools, 30 or 40 miles long and 4 or 5 miles wide, navigable only for shallow boats pulled by hand. But during the flooded season, which lasts from July to January, the Mekong, swollen by the rains, hits the delta with such a tremendous impact of water that the course of the Tonle Sap is reversed, and the central basin is filled until it becomes a great lake, 80 to 100 miles long, 15 to 30 miles wide, and in place 40 to 50 feet deep, unquote. So the river, which flows out into the Mekong Delta from further north and west, reverses course every year and fills a great lake. Tonle Sap actually means great lake, and it can be 30 miles wide. He goes on, quote, Late in October, the water begins to recede, and by the time it has reached normal limits in February, millions of fish are left imprisoned in the many muddy pools and bayous formed by the retreating water. These fish, which today rank second to rice, among the products of Indochina, no doubt attracted early settlers to this region, unquote. An extremely fertile land with annual flooding and annual fish yields was certainly an attractive place to live. This area was referred to by the Chinese as Funan as early as the 3rd century AD and had likely been around as a state for a couple hundred years at that point. In the 6th century, the Chinese stopped referring to Funan and seemed to start calling the region Chenla, so what followed is called by modern historians the Chenla period. Chenla probably started in the north, in today's southern Laos, and moved its way into Funan territory. They eventually covered a large area from the north of the Cambodian heartland all the way south to the Gulf of Thailand. It's not clear if the kingdom was united as the Khmer Empire was, or if it was several smaller kingdoms that were related. 
In time, the region was certainly divided into at least a northern and southern or maritime Chenla. Maritime Chenla eventually became a dependency of Sri Vijaya. The northern edge of the Tonle Sap is where the Chenla had a capital. The last king of one of these Chenla people, Jayavarman II, lived in several of these cities and used them as his capitals. He transitioned Chenla into what we now call the Khmer Empire. His story comes to us from an Arab merchant who came by the region in the 850s. It sounds a bit more legend than fact, but it could have some merit. Briefly, it goes like this. Jayavarman II's predecessor told his advisors that all he wanted in this world was the head of the great king of Java on a platter. By Java, he was probably referring to the Srivijayan Empire, although there were some smaller kingdoms on eastern Java. But it was probably the king of Srivijaya because he responded with overwhelming force. He got word of this head-on-a-platter business and sent a large expeditionary force to teach Chenla a lesson. And, as the ruler of a mighty maritime empire, he probably didn't want to be seen as looking weak against such a threat. He made quick work of the surprised Chenla defenders, and he captured the Chenla king. He told him, and this is the quote from the Arab merchant's record, quote, You have manifested the desire to see before you my head on a plate. But if you had also wished to seize my country and my kingdom, or only to ravage a part of it, I would have done the same to Khmer. As you have expressed only the first of these desires, I'm going to apply to you the treatment you wish to apply to me, and I will then return to my country without taking anything belonging to the Khmer, either of great or small value, unquote. After lopping off the Chenla king's head, he left the country just as he said he would. Now, this is all pretty straightforward. What we don't know is if Chenla was a vassal of Srivijaya before the incident. Afterwards, though, it seems that it did indeed become a dependency of the Indonesian Thalassocracy. Jayavarman II, according to at least some sources, may have been a Khmer nobleman that was living in Java at the time of the event, and apparently the ministers left in charge after the decapitating chose him as their new king, so he returned to rule, and after a few years, in 802 AD, he declared independence. The story actually makes plenty of sense, if Chenla was already a dependency of Srivijaya, then you might see why their king would have this desire to have a platter with the head of their master. And if they were a dependency, then Jayavarman II could very well have been living on Java as a sort of royal hostage, something that we see happening constantly in, for example, Roman-era Europe. If that's the case, he may have known the Srivijayan king, grew up around him, and may have even been put in place by him after the invasion. Regardless of the truth to this story, it's a pretty good one, and it sets the stage for the next era of Cambodian history, the Khmer Empire. In 802 AD, Jayavarman II went to a place called Mount Mahendra and declared a new site for his capital. He declared himself Kambujendra, supreme king of the Kambuja people. And, one more declaration, he also declared independence from Java. This is traditionally considered the beginning of the Khmer Empire, and of independent Cambodia. This was the first of many capitals founded by Khmer rulers. Even Jayavarman II founded more than one. These capitals were complex. Mahendra Drapavarta, as it is called, was eventually abandoned and lost in the jungle. 
It is only today being uncovered from the forest and rediscovered. It had many buildings and grid patterns of streets, and the city could support thousands. Although each city did act as a center of operations for the empire, including the always important religious duties, calling them cities might not be the most accurate term. The capitals that came after it may have been modeled on this city. Mahendradripavarta, which we don't know as much about compared to Angkor, could be an exception to this. As for the later ones, they were more like temple complexes, and it's not totally clear to us today, but the buildings that remain may have been temples, with the administrative and residential parts of the capitals built outside of the temples. Over the years, more and more were built. The country, though, was not yet completely united, despite the king's declarations. Over time, they did expand, and a few hundred years later, by the beginning of the 12th century, the Khmer Empire stretched from western Vietnam to Burma, occupying most of Indochina east of Burma. It was around this time that the most magnificent of these temples was built, Angkor Wat. Briggs writes, quote, Angkor Wat, the pagoda of the capital, as the name has been corrupted in modern Cambodian and Siamese, is the greatest and best preserved of the Khmer monuments. Except possibly Bante Chamar, hidden in the forests of the northwest, it is the largest religious edifice ever built by man. In combined magnitude and magnificence, it stands alone, unquote. The King Suryavarman II probably began construction of this magnificent temple. But it was likely not completed in his lifetime. He brought the empire to one of its great heights, but when he died around 1150, the empire which had been the biggest power in continental Southeast Asia for a few centuries now went into a brief period of decline. This is when our subject, Jayavarman VII, comes into our story. This period of Khmer history, between the death of Suryavarman and the rise of Jayavarman, is less clear than others. There aren't really any temple inscriptions telling us what happened. It seems that Jayavarman's father was the king, but unlike much of the rest of the world, the leadership of the Khmer Empire didn't always pass to the sun. Jayavarman's father died around 1160, and he was already in his mid-30s. Jayavarman also got married at this time, to a princess named Jayaraja Devi. She was a devout Buddhist, and this influenced Jayavarman's own beliefs. In a country where at least the elite were mostly a sect of Hindu, he became a strong proponent of Buddhism himself, which is probably why, when another family member claimed the throne, rather than get involved in a violent dynastic struggle, which would pit him against members of his family, he imposed a sort of self-exile and went east to Champa, and their capital of Vijaya, in what is today called the South Central Coast region of Vietnam. The new Khmer king, Yaso Varman II, have you figured out yet that Varman at the end of a name means king? Dealt with some sort of internal revolt, probably a peasant revolt, and Jaya Varman's son fought alongside him helping the royal family. But it didn't help enough, and at some point Yaso Varman was overthrown and killed in a coup. This coup, which occurred around 1165 AD, wasn't by Jayavarman or his son. Instead, it was by someone outside of the immediate royal family. A man called, here goes nothing, Tribuvanaditya. He was thought to have been a high-ranking administer, but once he became king, 
course he has to be called Tribuvana Ditya Varman. Yay. Upon hearing this news, Jayavarman VII returned to Cambodia, but he didn't start any trouble just yet. It doesn't seem that Tribuvana Ditya Varman sought out the members of the royal family and killed them or anything like that. It's not clear that Jayavarman was in hiding. What Jayavarman did over the next decade is unknown, but trouble was brewing for the Khmer Empire. In 1177, the king of Champa launched a full invasion of Cambodia. They surprised the Khmer by sailing up the Mekong into the Tonle Sap River slash lake to the capital at Yasodharapura and sacking it. They killed Tribuvana Dichavarman, so I'll never have to say his name again. And this plunged the empire into a period of disorder and chaos. Over the next few years, Jayavarman rallied his people and raised an army to combat the invaders. Although the inscriptions do not really start up until after he is king, so we still have limited information. It seems that he expelled the Champa and killed the rival king in a large naval battle. By 1181, Jayavarman was more secure in his position, and he was crowned king of the Khmer. At this point, he might have already been in his early 50s, but things were still not all well with his country. Within a year, he was sending troops to put down a revolt in one of the dependent kingdoms. This kingdom, Maliang, was on the other side of the Tonle Sap and the Great Lake, southwest of Angkor. He sent a prince of the Champa, named Vijanandana, to help quell the rebellion. He may have been in exile from the current Champa regime, which is why he was trusted. Vijanandana was successful, and Jayavarman bestowed many riches upon him. Right around this time, Jayavarman's wife, Jayaraja Devi, died. He chose her sister, Indra Devi, as his principal wife and queen. Indra Devi is remembered as being very smart and accomplished. Like her sister, she was devout Buddhist, and she was a leader of Buddhist teaching in the country and was given charge of three different temple schools. She was well-versed in Sanskrit and wrote a well-known inscription which both demonstrates her mastery of the language and her intellect. It also gives us evidence of the artistic abilities of the Khmer people outside of their impressive architectural and building projects. It relays that the Khmer turned the Jakatas, some of the earliest Buddhist texts, poems and stories about the previous lives of Buddha and the like, into plays and dances performed in the temple schools. In addition, inscriptions by her made throughout the kingdom often showed her sister as well as her husband as a sign of respect for the deceased queen. Jayavarman had to begin rebuilding his capital once he became king, which had been destroyed by the Champa. At the site of his victory over the Champa, just outside of the old capital, he built two large temples just west of the East Barai. The Barais were large, something like seven and a half by two kilometer artificial rectangular pools, and there were two in the Angkor area. One of the temples he built would be called the Priya Khan, or Sacred Sword. This temple is thought to be his first capital and is located in the large Angkor complex. The other is called Ta Prom, and both are largely unrestored today, with jungle trees growing in them. Part of the problem with restoring these is that we just aren't totally sure how they looked, so much of the restoration 
is really just an attempt to keep them from falling into further disrepair, rather than trying to rebuild what once was. In 1190, Jayavarman sent an army against the Champa as an act of revenge after 1177. First, though, he sent an embassy to the Dai Viet, northern Vietnam, to make sure there was no interference, hurt feelings, or whatever. Jayavarman sent Vinjanandana again, and he captured the king of Champa and brought him back to Angkor. According to the Chinese sources, our devout Buddhist king killed all the counselors and ministers and installed his own brother-in-law, Prince In, on the Champa throne. Prince In was driven out in 1191 by a revolt, and a new king was proclaimed in Champa. Jayavarman responded by sending the Champa king back to help recapture the capital. Together with Vidya Nandana, they retook the capital, Vijaya, together. But peace and harmony did not last, and a civil war broke out between the new king and Prince Vidya Nandana. The prince won the battle, killed the old king, and became the new king of Champa. Jayavarman was then mad at the defiance of his best general, who, let's be fair, was probably like, hey, I'm a Cham prince and we are buddies, why don't you just let me be the king of Champa? Nope, Jayavarman was not having it. In 1193 and 1194, he sent two invading armies to attack his old buddy, the new king of Champa. The first one was defeated, which is why he had to send the second one, and it was defeated too. Champa, which had only been ruled by Jayavarman for a couple years, floated away again from the Khmer Empire's orbit, possibly allying with the Dai Viet to the north. But Jayavarman continued to expand the resurgent Khmer Empire. Frustrated in the east, he decided to go in the other direction. In 1195, he sent armies to some smaller states to the southwest, as far as the Malay Peninsula. It's likely that at least some of these were former tributary states that had drifted away during the last half a century of decline. It's also possible, based on some Chinese chronicles, that he was able to take Burma and the capital of Pagan. More likely, though, is that they had significant border fighting to the point that the Pagan kingdom paid the Khmer some sort of tribute to keep the peace. Back in Angkor, his greatest building project was something that surpasses Angkor Wat in terms of sheer size, although it was not as well built. The city, Angkor Thom, was not new, but the construction there was. It's likely that much of the site had been destroyed by the earlier Champa invasion. Angkor Thom is, like Angkor Wat, a huge site. The outside moat stretched around it for more than 8 miles. It's a square complex, about 3.3 kilometers, or just over 2 miles, per side. We tend to think of these massive spaces as temples or temple complexes, and while they were dedicated to Buddhist or Hindu gods, and certainly had buildings specifically for worship, these were city centers. It is thought that 100,000 people lived in and around Angkor Thom. According to Briggs, Quote, the city and its environs must have had a considerable population. It was more spacious than any of the medieval walled cities of Europe and could easily have contained the Rome of Nero's day. And at that, it is believed that the enclosure was simply a religious, administrative, and aristocratic center where lived clustered around the capital and the principal temple, the civil and military functionaries, the priesthood, the rich families, and the army. 
while the markets and the homes of the masses were in suburbs along the berets, or artificial lakes, to the east and west of the walled city, and along the banks of the Siemri River, even to the mouth, unquote. The site contained new buildings and old ones, too. He built the walls of the city around older monuments, some of which had been damaged or destroyed by the Champa. But while the site was massive and remains a marvel today, they weren't quite built to the level of quality that Angkor Wat was. One thought is that it was built much more quickly and less carefully than Angkor Wat, and suffers somewhat because of this. Near the center of Angkor Thom, Jayavarman built what is called the Bayon, and this helps put Angkor Thom as the greatest temple in the region behind Angkor Wat. The Bayon suffers from the same construction issues as the rest of the Angkor Thom complex, but it is still magnificent. The Bayon isn't as big as the Angkor Wat temple, but it has been called by Jean Comel, the first conservator of the Angkor group of superior conception to that of Angkor Wat, and it is here we must study the genius of the masters of Angkor. A Chinese ambassador who visited in 1296 noted that the Bayon was topped with a gold tower. Unfortunately, because of the haste of these construction projects, as well as the what has been termed Baroque grandeur of the buildings from this era, they haven't lasted as well as others like Angkor Wat, and are in a more ruinous state today than some other temples. Pictures of the Bayon and of Angkor Thom and a map of the whole city complex can of course be found on the Almost Forgotten website. During his reign, Jayavarman built dozens of hospitals, although healing temples to the gods may be more appropriate descriptions. That's not to suggest there wasn't real medicine or healing performed there, but religion was a part of it. People who lived near the hospitals were exempt from forced labor and at least some taxes, and couldn't be punished for most crimes, so they probably were also the people who actually worked there every day. He also connected the Khmer Empire with miles and miles of highways that sat above flood levels. Along many of these highways, he built rest houses or charity halls for pilgrims making their way to the various temples in his empire. In 1201 AD, the Chinese record tribute from the Khmer by a king who had reigned for 20 years, helping give us further evidence and placement of Jayavarman. Throughout this time, he continued to have conflict along the border with Champa. In 1203, give or take, Jayavarman sent another army into Champa under the leadership of a Khmer prince, and this time they were more successful. This invasion sent Vidya Nandana packing, and he fled to the Dai Viet. The Khmer Empire once again held Champa as a vassal state, and this would last for close to a century. They also engaged in some fighting with the Dai Viet, but these might be considered more of relatively minor border skirmishes than any truly major conflicts. Another accomplishment of Jayavarman was on the religious side. The Khmer Empire's state religion was Shaivism, a form of Hindu that worshipped Shiva as its supreme deity. But Buddhism had been present in Southeast Asia since at least the 400s AD. Buddhist monks made their way to the region in the next few centuries and brought with them Mahayanist Buddhism, a sect which today more than half of all Buddhists belong. Shaivism remained the state religion, but at some point in the 1100s, Probably during Jayavarman's father's reign, 
Buddhism seemed to overtake Hinduism as the main set of beliefs among the ruling family. Jayavarman built the first major Khmer temple dedicated to Buddhism in the form of the Bayon inside of Angkor Thom. He also represented himself as a Buddha reincarnation of sorts, a kind of god-king. Shaivism remained an important religion to the Kambuja Desa. There didn't seem to be religious persecution from one belief set to the other, at least not at this time. And of course, as is typical throughout the world, each absorbed at least some of the other's traditions and beliefs. When it was all said and done, Jayavarman probably pushed the Khmer Empire to the largest it had been in its history. Not only did it control the southern Mekong and the Tonle Sap, through its subjugation of Champa, the empire reached the eastern edge of Indochina, touching the South China Sea. We really don't know how far north it went, but it may have extended its power into northern Vietnam. And it seems that Vientiane, today's capital of Laos, was probably under the Khmer Empire's direct control. Almost the entire Chao Phraya River Valley, once known as the Minam, the major river in Thailand which is home to Bangkok, was also part of the empire. The empire stretched down through its dependencies to the bend in the Malay Peninsula. Jayavarman probably died between 1215 and 1220 AD. He was in his early 90s, and he was succeeded by Indravarman II. We aren't sure if Indravarman was Jayavarman's son, but it is known that he was a Buddhist, and he completed some of the temples that Jayavarman started. After his death, Jayavarman VIII became king in 1243. He practiced Shaivism, and saw to the destruction and desecration of some of the Buddhist monuments built earlier. He also oversaw the decline of the Khmer Empire, as the Sukhothai Kingdom in modern Thailand began pushing them out of their western territory. Also, the Mongols under Kublai Khan at least passed through the territory, and the Khmer eventually submitted to them, but continued as at least a moderately independent nation. After this, the Khmer Empire suffered further decline, with many civil wars and pressure from foreign powers. The last Sanskrit inscription we've seen is from the 1300s. Our history after that comes only from other sources. The region of Angkor was eventually abandoned as a capital in the 1400s, and the Khmer moved to Phnom Penh, bringing on the end of the Khmer Empire, ushering in what is sometimes called the Dark Age of Cambodia. While the Khmer Empire did end, the people weren't necessarily subjugated and swallowed up. The Sukhothai may well have raided Angkor Thom itself, and the Khmer abandoned it, but the leadership moved and the people didn't disappear as an independent group. According to Briggs, quote, The fall of Angkor, on the other hand, marks the end of the definite type of culture which had characterized ancient Cambodian civilization, the culture of magnificent monuments and marvelous sculptures of Sanskrit inscriptions, poetic and beautiful. The Khmers left the world no system of administration, education, or ethics like those of China, no literatures, religions, or systems of philosophy like those of India. But here, Oriental architecture and decoration reached its culminating point. This was the ancient Khmers' contribution to civilization, and this was what fell when Angkor fell, unquote. They survived, sure, but they suffered a significant decline in power, and, unlike what Jayavarman did himself in recovering their capital, these later Kambuja were not able to recover. 
Jayavarman VII ruled over the Khmer Empire at what can probably be considered its last great height, perhaps its cultural pinnacle. But he also did force his Buddhist beliefs on a people that might not have been entirely interested in them. He embarked on a massive amount of building projects, which included some massive buildings. This led to economic troubles for the empire and a backlash against the Buddhist beliefs, as some of his buildings were desecrated. By the beginning of the 20th century, Jayavarman was almost entirely forgotten as a leader. Khmer writing survived not in the form of books and letters, but rather as inscriptions, and most inscriptions were still buried and hidden under jungle vegetation. Jayavarman's greatness was not recognized by modern locals, who were too disconnected from their history to remember him. But it also wasn't initially recognized by European archaeologists who came in and began rediscovering the Khmer Empire. He was thought to be a minor ruler until tales of a great Khmer king began to be uncovered throughout continental Southeast Asia, starting around 1903. In 1928, French scholar and expert on Southeast Asian archaeology, George Cotis, attributed most of Angkor Thom, and through that, the architectural style of the period, to Jayavarman, and his contributions began to come to light. Cotis, writing in 1935, summed up his life thusly, quote, the king, of whom scarcely more than the name was known in 1900, is now considered as the greatest sovereign of Cambodia, he who enlarged his country up to its extreme limits, incorporating therein for a time the kingdom of Champa, and covered his capital and his states with the most prodigious ensemble of monuments which monarch has ever conceived, unquote. Jayavarman VII's true legacy may not have been leading the Khmer Empire to its greatest extent and maybe height of its power, but rather recovering it at all after it had been lost to the neighboring Champa. This allowed it to continue to flourish for another half-century at least, and allowed him to create some of the most beautiful architectural sites the world has ever seen. Thanks for listening. Please join me next time when we finish up the season by moving west to Europe, and ahead about 400 years, to discuss a man who was considered unfit for military service in his home country, ended up being the leading general for a rival, and was considered by Napoleon to be one of the greatest generals the world had ever seen. Thank you all for bearing with me the last couple episodes. I've been pretty sick. I don't know if you can tell by my voice. I've tried as best I can to edit out all the scratchiness and coughing of my mild case of pneumonia, the one consequence it may have is I'm going to do my best to put out the final episode, episode 10, in two weeks, but I'm not sure if I'm going to quite get there. So if I can't do it in two weeks, expect it in three or four, but it'll come in May, the final episode, episode 10 of season two, before I take a break to prepare for season three. So thanks again for listening. How do you say chow prior?